Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, the chair of the committee. Tickets are now on sale for this year's festival, which features a great lineup of authors. For more information, visit marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. For now, enjoy this great session from the 2022 Book Festival. Uh, during an interview with Kim Hill on National Radio in 2020, Kim asked if Ruth was planning on writing a memoir. Ruth replied, no, my husband keeps on telling me that I should, but I think everybody's got a story to tell. Kim shot back with, oh, don't give me that. Ruth, you know as well as I do, some people are very, very boring and you are not. <laughs> Ruth Shaw has lived in the high seas, worked with six workers on King's Cross and spent decades fighting for the environment. She and her husband Lance are now retired, sort of, <laughs> and live in Manapuri, where Ruth has three beautiful tiny bookshops. She has also written about her extraordinary, she did write about her extraordinary life in The Bookseller at the End of the World. Beautiful little book. Uh, and it is with much pleasure that I welcome Ruth Shaw to the Mobile Book Festival. Thank you. Um, I just do have a viewer, a viewer warning. Uh, some scenes may cause tears and definitely laughter and may even involve coarse language. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ruth, what made you decide to write the bookseller at the end of the world after all that? Well, that's my husband. <laughs> and he's been telling me for years to write my book, but I felt that I wasn't ready and then when um, Jonathan White, who some of you might know as a journalist, he was a journalist for North and South magazine, and he wrote a wonderful book, How to Walk a Dog, um, he came to Manapuri and he said, you've really got to write a book. So Lance said, I've been telling her that for years and she won't listen. So anyway, then Jenny from Ellen and Unwin contacted me and she kind of put the last nail on it, and so I signed the contract. Well, we're very grateful for that. <laughs> Great. Um, and how, how was the process of remembering and telling those stories? Had you told many people? I, my friends knew part of what had happened to me throughout my life, but I didn't tell them everything. And a lot of my friends didn't even know that I'd been married four times. And, you know, I know that sounds outrageous. As my father said, are you trying to beat Elizabeth Taylor? <laughs> but um, but it's – I thought if I'm going to write my book, I have to be as honest as possible. And very luckily, all my life I've kept diaries and um, I keep every single piece of paper that means anything to me. So when I decided to write my book, I laid everything out on the floor and put it in dates and I got all my diaries out, and which were a great help. So I thought if I'm writing this book, I have to be, um, I have to be honest and I, I can't say, well, I can't say that because... I think if you're writing a book, you have to lay yourself on the line. And if people didn't like it, then that's, that's fine with me. And I said to Jenny, um, I think I'm going to, when I write this, there'll be people that will say, oh my God, what a bloody disaster that woman was. And she said, no, I don't think they will, Ruth. And I said, well, I think they will. You know, I go from one chaotic episode to another. And I've been astounded that nobody has told me that I was crazy or chaotic, except my husband. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really what um, you're left with with the book, I don't think. I mean, I think more how adventurous you were and how resourceful you were and how resilient you were, you know, less about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did like, though, Mike, White had that voice of that you were hurtling from hurt, which was a good yes. description. Yeah. yes. Was it at all overwhelming? I, you know, I can imagine. I, I wanted to ask you how, because there's some detail there. I'm like, goodness, how did you remember all that? Um, when you had all those diaries out and you went back over them, was that quite overwhelming? Um, 
it was in some ways because I had forgotten a lot of the detail and then I'd be writing about something, I'd find the diary and then I'd go through to see if I had um, the registration of the piggery or the. I've even got all of the um, financials from the piggery. That's, you know, it's just crazy what I've got. And so it was opening up, um, I would read a bit and I'd say to Lance, I forgot all about this. And... So it was opening up a whole lot of things that I had pushed aside and forgotten. But I wanted it to be... um, I wanted it to be a story that touched not only women but men and to give the opening to people that have in some ways been traumatised in their lives to say, look, it's okay to speak out about it, to tell your friends about it, and to offload, really. So, And that's what's happened. And we'll come back to that a bit later on, but I thought perhaps you might just dive into your life a wee bit. And if you could go back back into your childhood. Your dad had lots of different occupations and businesses, and you were constantly moving. Why Why do you think that was? Well, my father was a nomad, really. My mother would have liked to have had a home that was made a home and we stayed there, but my father was always moving and he always had adventurous ideas and he was a little bit of an entrepreneur and that rubbed (laughs) off on me. Um, There was always, we'd, we'd never be anywhere for more than, three or four years and I'd come home from school and mum mum would say oh we're moving and it was just part of our life that we would move yeah so you talk a bit about his businesses and I wonder if you could just tell us a little about about my personal favorite the um free range frozen chicken enterprise (laughs) (laughs) for those of you that have read the book um you'll know this story but I was only about um, four and five, but I remember it because we had bought this little bungalow in Christchurch and Dad had ripped all the back out of it and there was Hessian sacking hanging and it was where the double bed was and Dad used to work at night, so we used to be in bed with Mum during the night. And my father and uncle decided that they would start the first frozen chicken enterprise in Christchurch. They managed to to organise a paddock where they were going to put these chickens. They bought all these chickens, and when they bought them, the guy that was going to rent them this land where the chickens were going to be said, no, I have to change my mind. So Dad and my uncle bought all these bloody chickens home. And what I can remember, one of my first memories, is when I... When we would go to bed, the chickens would come in underneath the hessian and sit along the back of the bed and on all over the bedroom, and I don't know how my poor mother put up with it. And Dad just kind of accepted it, that this was how it was going to be till the chickens were big enough to kill and try their frozen chicken enterprise until the neighbours said that it was just really too much having all these chickens <laughs> running around so it didn't get off the ground. It made me think your mother must have been very tolerant because he, the whole back of the house, the back of the kitchen and the bedroom had no wall. That's right. Through winter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And your mother just... Yeah, my mother was... They were quite young when they married... And um, she was quite often mistaken as our sister. She had bright red hair and she was only about four foot ten. She was absolutely dynamite. The, and I better not cry because she was so special, but it didn't matter what Dad did, Mum would be there. One of his other enterprises in Naseby was that he was the ice master and he had to prepare the ice for the Grand spiel, which is curling. And he would get up in the dark and he would boil these big milk cartons of boiling water and he'd get us all up and we'd go up and we'd stand on the ice and we'd pour now the warm water over the ice to make it black ice so it was really good for curling. And then he thought, just imagine the size of my mother, 
he thought, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll build a fire on the side of the dam and then we can run a hose over the fire to get really boiling water on the ice so that it's really beautiful ice. So my mother's nickname was Fred. Her name was Frida. And he said, Fred, Fred, go and get some wood and some paper. Here we are in the middle of nowhere. And some paper. My dad smoked a pipe. And we'll build a fire. And I was about 12 at the time. And mum said, come on, love. And we were scrambling around in the bloody snow looking for firewood so we could build a fire out of wet fire at wet wood while Dad was there saying, hurry up, hurry up. (laughs) 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 Um, Actually, that leads me on to Naseby. So you were brought up in Christchurch to your night, but then you went to Naseby. And your parents opened a butcher shop as well as the various other enterprises. Um, And your time in Naseby will always be associated, I imagine, with the events of 1963 when you were 17. Yes. um, Which was to dramatically alter the course of your life. And um, I was just wondering if you were happy to talk with us about that, Ruth. Yes, I am. It was when I was had just turned 17. I was only 17 by about two weeks. And for any of you that come from a rural place in New Zealand, we used to have dances out in the halls all around Maniatoto. We'd go to a different hall every month. And at one of these dances, um, I was raped. And because it was a very small community, Naseby was a very small community. There was about 180 people living there then. And Ranfurly was a very tight-knit community. It, um, it wasn't something you talked about. And I'm sure there's women here of my age that might have gone through something similar and it was always put under the carpet. But when, my, when I went home, I was working in Ranfurly and I can never remember how I got from Ranfurly to Naseby. But I was sitting in the bath and mum came in and I didn't want her to come in because I was badly bruised. And mum knew that something was wrong and she just held me and then washed me and said, it's okay, love, we'll work through this. So she told my father and it wasn't, and I expected that we would go to the police, but we didn't. And it wasn't until years and years and years later when I was nursing my mother when she was dying of cancer that mum told me that the family situation of when I was raped and why we couldn't go to the police. And I couldn't put that in the book and I can't talk about it because it would identify the guys. And in a very small community, um, you have to continue to live in that community. So I, I carried with me a, a, for a long time that if any of you have been sexually abused, you carry it with you. And for a long time I was very angry and then I just pushed it aside to try and live with it. And, but then, of course, it always comes back, as you know. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with us, Ruth. And I'd like to come back. You mentioned before that... Um, you, you know, in writing the book, you're hoping that you're also helping other people that have suffered something similar. And so I did wonder whether you've had contact from people that have read the book who it's been helpful, and if you could tell us a little bit about that. Your struggle must have resonated with lots of people. Yeah. When I was writing the book, I kept on thinking of my readers and thinking, if I'm crying while I'm writing this, my readers are going to cry, and if, if I'm laughing or I feel embarrassed, then that's how my readers are going to feel. And I really wanted, as I said, that for men to read my book because there are abused men out there as well, emotionally abused men, sexually abused men. And there's a lot of men and women out there that have had children adopted out or they have lost a child. And I was overwhelmed when the book came out that all of a sudden I started getting phone calls because I'm very easy to find in the phone book 
Ruth Shaw, Manapuri. And, um, and then I started getting mail and then I started getting emails and some of the letters have been absolutely astounding. And I'll tell you one story about a gentleman that came to see me. Lance and I were setting up the three bookshops and there was a man standing on the footpath just very quietly by himself and I went over and I said, um, hi, is anything I can do for you? And he said, I've come to see you. And so I said to Lance, can you finish setting up the bookshops? I'm just going to talk to this man. And this man said, um, I read your book and I've come to thank you so much for writing it. And he had tears in his eyes and he said, as I was reading the book, I was remembering my sister who I've been estranged from for a long, long time. She would go away, come back, cause utter chaos and then disappear. And mum and dad would always say, oh God, you know, she's always causing trouble. And this is what happened in my life. And he said he saw a parallel with his parents' relationship with the sister and his relationship with the sister with me. And he rang his sister up after many years and he said to her, I've just read a book and you have to read it. And she was surprised that he had rung her up. And then he said to her, were you sexually abused? And he said that he was prepared for her to say yes, but when she did say yes, it just really blew him away. And he got on the aeroplane and flew up to Auckland and they they became brother and sister again. When he came back, he wanted to come and personally thank me for writing that. And I just felt then that if nothing else came out of that book, that was worthwhile. I didn't write it to become... Ruth Shaw, who wrote the book. I didn't write it for money. I wrote it because I wanted to open doors for people. And that man proved that I'd done that. And many, many more have yes. as well, haven't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah. that must be Lance so comes home and says, more fan mail. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we didn't quite mention that. Um, you did also get pregnant from the rape. Yes. Yeah. And uh, perhaps you could just share with us what happened. Well, you know, being a good Catholic, you get pregnant as soon as you lay down, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's what it's there for. That they, that's what they tell you. You're not supposed to enjoy it. You're supposed to just have babies. Um, so I got pregnant. And um, the year that, well, the years, the 60s, 70s, and there might be women here that had to give a baby away, it was just accepted that you would be taken off somewhere and you'd have your baby that you would never see and it would be adopted. And so that's what happened to me. I went up to Wellington and stayed with an auntie in Wellington and none of the family knew. They all thought I was up there working and had a baby boy. And the nurse said, we're up to the A's now, so you can call your baby something starting with A. So I named him Andrew. And then my mother came up to be with me while I was having the baby, and she went and saw him. And years later, she told me how much she wanted to take him home. So then we were in a small ward with other... This was at the Wellington public hospital there was about six of us in this ward and we were all um pregnant single women that were looked down on you were never asked how you got pregnant you must have been wearing a short skirt or you must have been out gallivanting around or something and you leave and they give you medication to dry your milk up and they expect you to continue with your life but what happens is you carry that child with you forever 
And so once again, I had to shut down. But every time I saw a child that was about the age of my little boy, I'd think, oh, my God, is that him? Is that him? And because of the laws in New Zealand at the time, as many as you, many of you all know, that you weren't supposed to fi- try and find your child. But so, but very luckily, I did. And yeah, and that's in the book. Yeah, and we'll get to that at the yes. end. But um, gosh, it was barbaric, wasn't it? It was very barbaric. Yeah. Um, and you had a brief foray in the navy. Yes. Had you always been called to the sea? Because there's a lot of the... Well, my grandfather on my mother's side, we had a holiday home in Pyle Bay, which is in the Littleton Harbour. And he had a beautiful old clinker-built dinghy, which was called the Andrea York. And he taught us all to row and just about being safe in the water. And I loved the idea of sitting in a boat I get violently seasick every time, and I still do, and I've got to go over on the ferry to Wellington tomorrow, and I'm dreading it, because not only am I seasick, I usually get diarrhoea as well, and yeah, it's not pleasant. Yeah, that didn't go well on the Cuddy Sark, did it? No. Was it the first time you'd actually sailed? Um, no, I'd sailed with Lance prior. All right, so yeah, let's go back to that, then. Let's go back to the Lance. Um, so... You did actually go AWOL from the Navy. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> they weren't, the Navy, I imagine you think you were going to get out on the boat in the Navy, but you didn't, did you? No. No. They, so I joined the Wrens and I became what was then called a sick birth attendant. And the Wrens were a totally different entity to the sailors. And the sailors were all having really good fun. I must be boring. There's a poor man asleep there. And, um, <laughs> It's all right. I do exactly the same, honestly. Um, So, oh, the poor man, I've embarrassed him. Um, I'll have a drink later on. Take note. (laughs) Don't close your eyes. Yes, I'm looking around, keeping my eyes. You'll fire something at you next. Yes. So, I thought that we would go to sea, and I thought that would be um, exciting. And it wasn't, it was very military and I wasn't very good at taking orders. And Yeah, that must have gone down really well, I'd imagine. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> didn't go down well at all. No, no. And so the only boat I got on was the American submarine, the Archerfish. And there was a sign up on the, on the board in the Wren's house that said if anybody would like to put their name down to go on the Archerfish, that you put your name down. Well, there was only two of us, and I thought everybody would want to go on a submarine, but there was only two of us, and that was the only time I went to sea. We went out on the Archerfish, and we dived, and it was also very exciting. And I thought, bugger this. I'm in the Navy, and I'm not going on boats. And also, as a sick birth attendant after three years, you came out with no certificates whatsoever. And I had said to the matron, why can't we go to Auckland Hospital and do geriatrics, maternity, all that kind of stuff, so we can sit out our nursing ticket and come out with something? But she said no. So I thought, I'm on my way. I had a little 1946 Ford Prefect, and I just loaded everything into it and drove away. <laughs> <laughs> and I love then when the Commandant, was it Commandant? Yeah. Um, rang your father? Yes. So um, they realised that I had left because my car was gone and I didn't turn up at work at the hospital. And so they rang my father and they said, we think Ruth has gone AWOL. And if she turns up in Naseby, uh, could you ring us and send her back? And he said, well, she bloody obviously doesn't want to be there, does she? I love that. I also thought when your father, um, when you were in Papaiti and you were about to be arrested, or had been arrested, had for been gambling, arrested. Yes. to earn money yes. in the street markets. Yes. you have to read the book to find out more about that one. Um, but they rang your father from Papaiti to say you'd yes. been arrested, and what did he say then? Well, I was hoping my mother was going to answer, because <laughs> mum was were. always very, very sympathetic. 
And I had been arrested in, in Papieti because I was illegally gambling at the market. <laughs> you wouldn't think that, would you? <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, they picked me up, but they couldn't arrest me for gambling. They had to arrest me for vagrancy because um, I was, at that time, we weren't actually, we had cars, but we weren't actually gambling. And... So then they wanted to deport me back to New Zealand. And so he, rang, he, he said, I'm going to ring your parents. And I thought, oh, please, God, please, God, let mum answer the phone. Well, dad answered the phone. And dad, in his very matter-of-fact way, they said that they had me, um, arrested me for vagrancy. And um, he just said, oh, she'll be all right. You know, um, no, that's all right kind of, they were going to ask if, if he would pay for me to go home, but I did have money. But Dad just said, you know, he just kind of brushed it off. Oh, well, it's just another thing that Ruth's done. Don't worry. She'll sort it out. <laughs> and you think, look, I was bearing around in the snow trying to find wet wood for you. You think you could, <laughs> you know, <laughs> help me out there. Um, sort of on that theme of um, illegal things, I don't want to give you the wrong uh, you know, impression of Ruth, but when you were um, in Brisbane, so you'd moved to Brisbane. Yes. You met your husband, your second husband. No, your first husband. First sorry, first husband. husband. But your first it's husband. It's very confusing. But your first husband. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd moved to Brisbane. Yes. But this was after you'd been sailing around the Pacific on the Karesat for about three months. So you yes. didn't really have any money. No. Um, and you really only had your old sailing clothes. And so you arrived here and you really needed to get a job, but you didn't have anything but no. old tatty sailing clothes to go for the interview. Yes. So, so what did you do there, Ruth? I think, the people, it, speaks to, I think it speaks to your resourcefulness. The it's, people it's that have you know, read the book are laughing. They are. It's good to hear it in person though, isn't it? Well, I'd actually been sailing around the Pacific for about six months and I only had jeans and T-shirts and everything and I needed to get a job. And I didn't really have enough money to buy clothes, so I thought what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to borrow clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so I cased out at night, I cased out the property or the, the area around where I was living to see who had clotheslines and if they were easy to approach in the dark and they didn't have too many lights and that I could approach them on the grass. I wrote down everything that I wanted so that I knew that I could possibly get in, get some clothes and get out with being caught. And I wrote down the addresses, the ones that were possibilities. And then after I'd done that, I worked out the map so I would very quickly go round to the clotheslines that I wanted to check out. So away I went and I managed to get a bra and some stockings, and a really pretty dress, and a petticoat. And I put a little note on the clothesline saying, I was very sorry, but I was going for a job interview and I needed, I needed some clothes. <laughs> because I was, polite, I was determined to return them. And so I had these wonderful clothes and the little dress was beautiful and I think the lady might have just bought it and she'd washed it so that she could wear it. But it was a little bit big so I put some darts in it and I went and I got the job and then so my next thing I had to do was to take the clothes back and hang them on the clothesline. But I didn't take the bra back because I thought that was a bit rude because I and I, so I put the note that I would buy them a bra and hang it on the clothesline. Anyway, so I took the clothes back and I hung them on the clotheslines and I thought, wow, that went really well. I, <laughs> you had a crossroads there. You could have gone down a completely different path, couldn't you? Yeah, I could have. I could <laughs> bank, have. Clothes to bank hoist. Yes, it <laughs> yeah. was incredible. I, and I thought that was it. But I'm not going to tell you what happened because it wasn't it. And but anyway, that I had that in my head that I was a burglar, 
But then somebody read the book and said that is actually I was a thief. And I suppose I was, really. Well, you gave them back. Well, that's what I thought. So <laughs> only a burglar would take it back. <laughs> Look, I just think it speaks to your resourcefulness under pressure, really. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> what I want to move on to actually is time at sea because you spent a lot of time at sea. And um, you spent lots of time sailing around the Pacific and Indonesia and had many hair-raising adventures. Yes. And um, so after you had separated from your third husband in 1980, you bought the yacht Magic. And with your dog, Jerry, and your kitten, <laughs> Ludmilla, you sailed the east coast of Australia yes. for six months. Now, I have – it's very exciting. I have a clicker. So we are hoping – oh, look, that worked – didn't have to refer to my 14-year-old son to help me with the technology. <laughs> so this, this is magic, isn't it? Yes. She was a flush decker and very easy to sail as a solo. Um, she had no toilet, so I had to do it in the bucket. But that's my dog, Jerry, that was with me. And I also had a little cat called Lord Miller Hoffman. And um, so I sailed from... Coffs Harbour up to Cooktown and back. I did like the image of the poor little kitten with the little basin that you had on the deck with her, as her sandbox, <laughs> <laughs> trying to cling on as she went to the toilet in high seas. But I would actually like Ruth to do a reading just because I, um, I'm not a person who, you know, I'm not a sea person at all. And so this sent the fear of God into me really um, of when you were, the night you sailed into Mackay Harbour in a cyclone. On this little boat. On this boat. little boat. On this little boat. So I'll just And find. I know that the dates are right because it was in the newspaper the next the next day that the whole of Mackay was in blackness because of the hurricane. Right, so let's start from that with the and go down to the next. The northerlies had arrived, so many yachts were heading south. With steady winds of 10 to 12 knots, I decided to sail straight through to Mackay from Cairns, with a night stopover at Bowen, allowing three days. The weather at first was perfect, but I was heading into a storm. Then on the 15th of November, the coastal area around Mackay was hit by cyclonic force winds, lightning and torrential rain. The wind and rain disrupted power and overturned boats in Mackay Harbour. As night closed in, Magic was battling high seas. That was the name of my boat. The reef main had been ripped off the mast, so with only mizzen to steady her, I motored south towards the harbour entrance. I was looking out for Flat Top Island Lighthouse, which marked the river entrance as well as highlighting shoals at Shoalwater Point and a reef off Hay Point. I should have been easy to be able to see the lighthouse on approach, but what I didn't know was that the light had been extinguished. It took some time for me to realise what had happened, but I wasn't too worried as I knew I would soon have lead lights to guide me into a safe harbour. But there were no lights, no lighthouse, no shore lights from the city, and no lead lights. I checked and rechecked my chart. I had to be near the entrance. The wind and seas had dropped, so I decided to trust my instincts and head towards the coast, listening for waves crashing on the shoreline and hoping to see the shape of land. For safety, I systematically ran parallel to the coast, hoping to see a break in the wave pattern that would point to the entrance. It took nearly two hours. Just before 0200, I entered Mackay Harbour, exhausted. My entire body had been tense and terrified for hours, but I had made it. In the morning, the harbour master came over to see me. Where the bloody hell did you come from? <laughs> Thanks, Ray. That is just amazing that you, on your own, managed to have that, um, be able to have that presence of mind in that sort of you know, terror, <laughs> terror situation. Um, was that your scariest moment at sea? Um, but when I was by myself, it was, yes. Mm. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, what is it that you love about being at sea? The solitude. Yeah. And the quiet. Yeah. So when you were hurtling from hurt, you often went to the sea, didn't you? Yes. And did that provide you with some solace or, or well, just a break aw- from... Yeah, you're away from everything. You didn't have to answer questions from people and um, you could just get into your own rhythm. Mm. And it was a very, I don't know, being at sea is a very, um, when it's calm or good sailing conditions, it's, it's very healing. Yeah. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're just going to flick forward a bit to King's Cross, which is uh, about around 1983-84. And uh, this is yeah, it's a bit of a summary of your life I'm going to talk about. At this stage of your life, to recap, yes, you'd been raped at 17, had to give your son up for adoption, lost your second son, Joshua, 13 hours after he was born, You'd been married three times, the last time to a physically abusive husband. Your mother had died very young of cancer at 46, and you had survived a suicide attempt. Uh, Kim Hill was really right, wasn't she? You definitely did not had a boring life. And in between <laughs> these was adventures plenty and businesses and amazingly, every time you went somewhere, you were just able to um, get a job, weren't you? you were yes. And if you didn't do that, you'd do a business. Yes. So all that sort of training that you had, even in the Navy and your father, <laughs> served you well. Your grandmother teaching you how to gamble, those sorts of things. Um, so at this point, though, you got a job at the Sydney City Mission as a youth welfare officer in King's Cross. What made you want to do this job? Um, when I was married, I was going to the University of New England studying community development. And... I was very, very interested in women's health because of what happened to me. And I really wanted to be able to work with women and young girls. And then when I saw this position at the Sydney City Mission, the Sydney City Mission in Sydney, I thought I would really, really like to work there. So I applied for it and I got the job. Wow. And... That must have been pretty heartbreaking work at times. It was because I was working mainly with drug addicts and prostitutes. And in the book I talk about Wendy who gave me this ring and I've never taken it off. She was one of the older prostitutes in the cross and she had um, focused entirely on earning enough money to buy her own home. But then, And so she wasn't into drugs but a lot of them were the males and the females. There were young boys on the on the streets as well. And um, you were to come sort of into that world of the, well, obviously you were part of the world of the drug squad, the police yes. drug squad, yes. who were actually really probably running the they were. drug trade in Sydney yes. at that time. So a lot of you might have seen the television series called Blue Murder, and it was about... Roger Rogerson mainly, who was the head of the drug squad in Darlinghurst at the time, and he was one of the main instigators of getting drugs onto the street. He was getting paybacks from a lot of the prostitutes and the drug dealers, and there was only one young policeman that was not bent. And because he wouldn't take any bribes, Roger Rogerson actually tried to kill him. And that came out in that um, Blue Murder series. He was feed this young guy. He had a little cross, silver cross, underneath the lapel of his uniform. And I saw it one day when he leant forward and I said to him, you're not going to survive here. And he said, I will. And I said, you won't. And he was home feeding his little girl, and Roger Rogerson had rented a guy whose nickname was Mr. Kill, Mr. Kill to drive past and shoot him, and he was shot, but very luckily he lived. And so you were right in the middle of this, weren't you, because Sally Ann I'm sorry, Huxley, Huxley yeah. had evidence against Roger Rogerson yes. and what was going on, and you'd obviously 
made her acquaintance or were yes. known to her. So what did she... So I was working with a young prostitute. Well, she was in her 20s. So she wasn't young because there was young girls there, 16, 17. There was a 14-year-old. And Sally, um, her boyfriend had, Warren LaFranchi, had been shot in the back by Roger Rogerson. Now, Warren was a drug dealer and he was also a pimp. When he was shot, Sally decided that she would go public and talk about the corruption in the New South Wales police. And she had enough evidence to show that Roger Rogerson was the kingpin. She went on 60 Minutes and she put her life on the line. She came and I used to see Sally because she was still working on the streets and she was a heroin addict. And she came to see me and she gave me a a dossier of all the people that were involved in bringing drugs into Australia and to Sydney specifically and what was happening in the police force. And she said, if anything happens to me, because she knew her life was at risk, if anything happens to me, Ruth, I want you to promise that you will get this to the right person. And I read it, and there were lawyers from Sydney, there were MPs from New South Wales, there was a sewer that was helping bring drugs into Sydney. And... I went to see my uncle, who at one stage was a commissioner of police in New South Wales, and I showed him, and he said, you can't show this to anybody. There's no one at the moment that you can trust with this information. He said, I want you to make three copies. I want you to send a copy to Lance. I want you to send, give me a copy, and I want you to hide the other copy. And when the time's right, we will make sure that this gets out. I came home... And because I had met Lance again after many years, to live in Manapuri with Lance. And it might have been about six months after I came home that I got a phone call from my uncle. And he said, there is a politician in in Newcastle that is very, very keen on knowing about what's happening in the New South Wales police. This is a guy that you could give this information to. So that's what I did. And they wanted me to go back to Sydney and give evidence. But I felt that everything that Sally had written down was enough to put Roger Rogerson in jail. And he's still there. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) And not to forget that uh, you did originally give the information to a reporter who wasn't, who probably was in cahoots with yes. Rogerson, and then several days later, your car or your friend's car was torched. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we, just to, you know, I knew this was going to be the problem, Ruth. You're just too interesting. This is far too much to talk about. You will have to buy the book. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned there before about Lance, and so early on, way back when you were uh, 21. T- 21, you first met Lance, but due to sort of a quite a big clash of beliefs. Your engagement was called off. Your wedding was called off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. You were both very um, clear on what your beliefs were, weren't you? And yes. both very determined people, I'd imagine. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> when you did get back together again, how, uh, 20-odd years later? Yes. Um, for you, you'd been through the mill. You'd had lots of great adventures, but, but you'd been through the mill. And I just how difficult was it to allow yourself to love and be loved by Lance? Very to difficult. let your barriers down? Yeah, very, very difficult. Lance had also been hurt. Mm. Um, and it was very difficult for me because as soon as I started to feel safe in a relationship, I had the belief that at some stage I would sabotage that relationship no matter how much I loved the person. And I loved Lance. He gave me this ring when I was 21 and I always carried it with me. 
And then he comes back on the scene years, years later and as soon as I saw him, I knew that he was my first and only love. And so I decided to put my yacht on the market in Sydney and come home to Manapuri from King's Cross to Manapuri, a little bit of a bloody <laughs> an eye-opener. And straight away I put up the shields mm. and very nearly destroyed it. Mm. And it was only through Lance's persistence that we worked our way through it. Do you think you could tell us a story about the roses, please? Just before questions, perhaps you could tell us okay. a story about the roses. Well, I I was such a still such a bloody mess that um, I ended up in Ward Twelve at Invercargill Hospital, which was a psychiatric ward. I was suicidal again, and after I'd been there for a while, they said I could come home. When you come into Fiordland, you come up a hill and it's called the Gorge and it overlooks the Fiordland Basin and you always know you're nearly near home when you're at the top of the Gorge. And Lance met me at the top of the Gorge. Another person drove me to the top of the Gorge and there was Lance and he drove me home. And when we got home, he opened the door and... (laughs) There were rose petals all down the footpath. He had gone across the road to our neighbours and asked if he could pick roses and he sprinkled all the footpaths with rose petals to welcome me home. <laughs> oh, isn't that lovely? That it is. is so lovely. Thank you for sharing that story with us, Ruth. It is actually now 20 past almost, so sorry, I'm a bit into the, over the time for questions i'm just going to flick this onto here because now we can also get a picture of the gorgeous little bookshops and if you have a question for ruth please put your hand up and a mic will magically appear i have plenty of questions i've stunned them yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's right because i can ask i've got so many more questions to ask you we can just keep thinking if you want to ask one stick a hand up and i'll keep an eye out for you um, so how did the wee bookshops come into being? Well, that one there is my first bookshop, which is the main bookshop, which has mainly um, all books relating to 45 South and below. So that's natural history, Māori, ornithology, geology, um, Fiordland, Southland, Otago. And then the little one over there with the dolls out the front is the children's bookshop, which has a little red door, and it's very small. You have to duck your head to go in. And this one here is called the Snug. But that is just an old English linen cupboard, and the side bit is a door that closes, so it closes at night. And that is... For it's hunting, fishing, tractors, trains, motorbikes, cars. It's a man's bookshop with a little seat because what happens is when when people come to the bookshop, I'd say 80% of the time the women come in and the men sit in the car. And so with this bookshop, I thought I can get men to get out of the car, go and sit on the seat and just browse at books. They don't have to buy a book. Because what had happened in the past before I built this was that they would sit there and they'd toot the horn or they would come to the door and say, have you got a book yet, love? And so the poor woman that wanted to spend time to select a book was put under pressure. So I thought, bugger them. So now I go out to the car and I say to the guys, there's a little bookshop there that's specifically for men And you can sit there. You don't have to buy a book. You can just sit there and just let your wife have time to choose a book. And it's turned out to be a great success. The farmers in the area won't come into the bookshop when they are in their old farming clothes with boots and they smell like silage, you know, that awful smell, or like cow manure or sheep manure. And they'll say, oh, Ruth, I won't come in. So I 
had a talk to them about building this bookshop, and I said, this will be perfect for you because you can sit outside and have your lunch or whatever. And so one of the, the shepherds said to me, well, you should call it the Smelly Farmer's Bookshop. <laughs> <laughs> what was Lance's response when you said you wanted a third bookshop? Well, his response when I wanted the second one was pretty interesting. <laughs> and then when I said I wanted a third one, he said, oh, God, Ruth, when are you going to stop? <laughs> oh, it looks about, it looks about there. <laughs> it's not much more than that. So I've promised him I definitely won't have another bookshop because as a lady from Queenstown that interviewed me said, do you realise you've got more bookshops on your property than the whole of Queenstown? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was wanting to ask you, obviously books have meant a lot to you through your life. Oh, is there a question there somewhere? I'm just wondering where all the books come from. Do you purchase them? Are they secondhand or new? Most of them are secondhand. I would say that... 95% 95% of my books are secondhand, and I close over winter, and that's when I do really, really a lot of searching for the books that I want. By the end of the season, which is just after Easter, before I close, my bookshelves are really quite empty because some of the books that I sell are very rare and they're quite hard to find. So I have a group of really dear friends that look for books for me all the year round and what I do at this time of the year is I try and refill my shelves yeah Ruth you mentioned that you had managed to catch up with your son that was taken from you I just want to know was that a healing experience for you catching up with that that boy and how old was he when he found you He was 21 when we found each other, and it was was extremely emotional even before we met each other, but I had organised it so that if it went wrong, we both had an out. So I went, they were, he was adopted into a Catholic family, and I went to see the local priest And he was there when James and I met. And the B plan was that if it all fell apart, he would go into another room. And Andrew was the name I called my son when he was born, and that's what he's called in the book, but that's not his name. And so um, the doorbell rang, and Father Sherry went and opened the door, and in came my son, and he had a blue jumper on with blue eyes and blonde hair just like my father and we just looked at each other across the room and we both had this enormous smile and then we just went to each other and just held and cried and cried and cried and it was everything I had hoped for plus more yeah and you're still and we get in contact yeah, with him. Yeah, and we keep in contact frequently, and we're staying with him tomorrow night. He's very much like me in many ways, except I'm green, he's blue. Um, Actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, is there any other questions just before I ask another question myself? Interspersed... Um, through the chapters of the book are little tales from the bookshops when you talk about some of the interesting people that you've met. Oh, I should keep flicking on my um, clicker, shouldn't I? Where have we got next? That's the little bookshop there. Oh. Oh. That, that is Cove, the bookshop dog, and the little bird is Catherine Mansfield. <laughs> um, <laughs> not the Catherine Mansfield. Um, <laughs> Reincarnated? Yeah. No. So... Cove is our part-time dog. He belongs to a local quay fisherman. And when he goes fishing, we look after Cove. He's now 15. And the little bird we found on our property and I raised 
I raised him or her, but I, I'm assuming it's a little girl. And she lived with us for quite a while. And Cove is a very, very gentle dog. You can do anything with him, as you can see. And little Catherine Mansfield, um, she lived inside with us for a long time. And then she flew away but used to come back on a, once a day to be fed. And then she flew away. And then about 18 months later, I was sitting in the bookshop. And here was this little bird standing on the, on the top step, just going absolutely crazy. And I said, is that you, Catherine? <laughs> and I raced inside and I said to Lance, I think Catherine Mansfield's back. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, and just quickly to finish, because we're just about out of time, and oh, I could have so many more questions. I'll just, you know, have to ask you personally some of the time. But um, one of the stories that I really loved was the two, the couple that came in, each picked a book. Oh, God, yes. Can you tell us about that? Because it's really extraordinary. It's isn't it? weird, isn't it? It's a little weird. So Sean Bethel, his second book was about people, or it might be even his third book, about the type of people that go into a bookshop. Sean Bethel wrote The Diary of a Bookseller, and then um, he wrote a book about the types of people that come into bookshops. And he never obviously had a couple like this couple. So this couple come into the bookshop, and they are both looking for books. And eventually they come together with a book each. And they say, well, what about this one? And they said, oh, yes, you know, I, I, we're a bit sick of war books. But anyway, is that what you want to read? Yes, okay. And what about yours? And um, she had chosen, I think it was 11 Minutes, I'm not sure. It's one of Gallico's books, and it's about a young female prostitute that gets dragged into prostitution without really knowing it. She's a... a a very, very country-type little girl. And she goes to the city and she is wooed by this pimp. So anyway, she said, well, he's a very good author. Why don't we read him? And so I said, um, oh, so you both read each other's books? And they said, no, we've got a, a method. I read the first 100 pages and he reads the last 100 pages. And then we sit down and we discuss the book. And I said, like, you can't even imagine anybody doing this. And I said, well, so much happens in the middle of a book. <laughs> there might be new characters introduced or somebody might die or they might move countries. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens in the middle of a book. How do you get around that? Oh, no, she said, it's... It's, we, we just sort it out. We sit down and we discuss it. And it always works out. And I said, well, look, this book is quite traumatic. And it's about a young girl that ends up as a prostitute. Would you like me to tell you the middle of the book? And they said, oh, God, no, you'd ruin it. <laughs> They never actually, and they never read the middle of the book to find out, you know, how close they were. Okay, isn't it? Were you? <laughs> well, it made them very happy, so that's great. <laughs> um, so to finish, the back of the book says, this will make you weep and make you laugh and make you want to read more books and make you want to visit Ruth and her two wee bookshops. And it did all of that for me. Ruth's fabulous book is available for purchase in the foyer and I highly recommend you go and buy it, if not for yourself, and give it to somebody else as well. Um, if you could just re uh, wear a mask, uh, when you buy, if you want to get it signed, because Ruth will, so she's got some that have already been signed, but um, if you uh, want to buy one and get it signed, Ruth will be available, just please wear a mask for that. Thank you. Um, and could I just ask you, if you just remain seated while Ruth and I leave the room. And go and get you ready and you're signing. Uh, so, Ruth, it's just been such a privilege and a joy to meet you and to talk with you. Um, throughout the book, I was just blown away by your resourcefulness, your resilience, your courage, your humour, your adventurous spirit and your kindness and empathy. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming to talk with us.
Thank you, everyone. That was a fantastic conversation from the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. Tickets are selling fast for this year's event, so head to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. We look forward to seeing you there. Bye for now.